opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, everybody, to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Summer. And I'm Jennifer. And this is the second part of The Zebra Murders. Part two. I was hoping maybe we could fit into one, but it sounds like here we are. There's no way. <laughs> she had, what, over 18 pages? Something like that. I was like, Jennifer, this is a two-parter. You got this. All right. I'm so proud of you. Your first two-parter. Thank you so much. Part one was extremely tough to listen to, and you were very informative. Well, we covered more of the introduction, some murders. We still have more murders to talk about. Yes. If you haven't heard part one, listen to that first. Obviously. There's no reason to listen to part two if you haven't heard part one yet. (laughs) But for those people that just want to jump ahead, you don't want to jump ahead with this. You need the backstory. Yes, you do. Do we have business or should we just jump right into where we left off? I don't think we have any business. We had secondhand carbonation going on before we started recording, but that's it. From the coffee Cokes. Yeah, Jennifer drank a coffee Coke and I started burping. So, (laughs) whatever. I'm okay with it. (laughs) I'm not. Why am I the one burping and you drank the Coke? We really are one person. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, jump right in. Part two. Here we go. All right. So where we left off was the officers stopped Larry Green. They had to let him go because there was nothing to, there was no reason to hold him. They had a feeling they needed to keep their eye out for Mr. Green. Mm -hmm. Mr. Green. Okay. So more than five weeks went by until any other killings took place. The citizens were on edge and filled with panic. The city ordered increased police presence in the area. The investigators determined that the M.O. for these killers were hackings, unprovoked street attacks, hitchhike kidnappings, and all-black perpetrators and all-white homicides. So this is obviously the theme with these crimes. On January 27th, 1974, a meeting was held in the Nation of Islam Temple Number 26. It is not clear whether it was a meeting about putting a halt on the murders or if it was an effort to keep them going. Either way, five weeks had passed, and some members wanted to continue their process of getting their wings. The next night, J.C., Manuel, and Anthony took the Cadillac and went on a drive. J.C. specifically was on a mission that night. Tana Smith, 32, lived alone in San Francisco. She was feeling good about life because she had just gotten back into shape. She had plans to visit her family in Florida, and she was planning on becoming an usherette in an opera house. Because she loved opera. I'd like to be an usherette in an opera house. You're very good when we do the, what's it called? Karaoke. Karaoke. See, I can't even say the word. I don't. As much as you don't like like karaoke. (laughs) But I support you in your karaoke career. Is karaoke a career? I I thought it's just a hobby. It could be. Oh, it's another hobby you have. Very good. I can put that in our TikToks. Oh, we will. It'll just be you. What? We won't even have to actually be singing. <laughs> it just be... We'll be in the audience. <laughs> okay, fine. She was also really good at sewing and was a fabulous seamstress. She decided that she was going to make herself a new blouse, which is really cool that someone has that talent. I could never create my own clothing. I used to sew clothing for the kids I babysat for. 
Did you like it? Were you good at it? I was I was decent at it. Yeah, my mom is a really good seamstress and so she can sew like elaborate gowns, serious stuff, but I didn't take it that far. Oh, <laughs> so I that's would, where you learned it. Yeah, yeah. My mom's very creative and my dad's very he's scientific and analytical. And my dad also did cabinetry, creativity on both sides of my family. So you got both, which is cool. I got the creative factor and then you got the very smart intelligent. Look at you. Very smart. So (laughs) sweet. It's true. It's true. (laughs) No, I can't claim the very smart, but I would sew outfits for the kids I babysat for and bring it to them. The parents loved it. Little cute little shorts and a shirt. Like this one girl, her mom was a music teacher. And so I found one and the fabric had like piano notes and stuff on it. So I made her a little short and top set. Oh, yeah. I could never. That's a talent for sure. I don't know it anymore. I made Did you masks. forget it? You like deleted it? I'm from sure. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't know how to do it now. I would have to brush up. I made masks though when the you pandemic did. started. You did. They were so cute. They had little like flower patterns. Yeah, and I had some lemon. One with lemons on it. You know, because lemons are antiviral. <laughs> that was the message. <laughs> that was the message. <laughs> Go wash your hands. <laughs> We digress. We digress from the uh, seamstress. <laughs> but hobbies. Hobbies talk. got us excited. Yeah. So she was walking towards the fabric shop that was a few blocks away from her home, and JC approached her from behind and shot her twice in the back. She struck the sidewalk hard, and he looked over her. A station wagon slowly drove by who witnessed the scene. JC noticed this and ran off. The witness rushed to get help, and she died shortly after. So something about this part. The witness who went to go find help, there was a hospital a few blocks down the street. So he ran to that. He was in the moment. He forgot he even had a car. So he ran down the street to the hospital. And when he told the receptionist what happened, her first response was, does she have insurance? Stop it. That is so like hospitals. Oh, my God. I know. Isn't it infuriating? It pisses me off. Yes. So she was like, I'll call an ambulance for you. But if she has insurance, I'm going to need her insurance card right now. We're doing this in the 70s, too. Good to know. Insurance companies, they've stayed consistent over the years. Such BS. Yeah. Priorities, you know, saving lives or, you know, getting that insurance money. Getting that money. Yep. Mm -hmm. 15 blocks away. Vincent Wallen was celebrating his 69th birthday. He was a retired Coast Guardsman and cabinet maker. His everyday pleasures were playing dominoes, feeding the pigeons, and indulging in coffee and donuts. Oh, those are great hobbies. All of that, yeah. Vincent was walking home, and he had a nice birthday, but he was very tired and knew he would sleep well. Manuel parked the car, and JC handed him the gun. Manuel ran up behind Vincent and shot him in the back. He turned around shocked, then tried to walk forward. Manuel shot him again. When police and ambulance arrived, it was said that Vincent was still alive. A witness, Lulu Badger, approached police and gave a description of the man. She was waiting for the bus when she saw it happen. The officers radioed out the description. He died later that night on his birthday. Oh, that's so sad. I know. These just make you so sad because there was no way to prevent them. Right. Yeah, there's no, I mean, these people wouldn't have guessed that that day this would happen and they were just going about their business, living their lives. Yeah. And it was just like, if they felt like it, they looked at you and saw that you look like you could be a victim. They'd get out the car, shoot you, and it was over in a matter of seconds. They do target people that are older. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of women too. Yeah. Um, So women... Men who are older, and if they're younger, then they're more, like, slam-built, not someone that would put up much of a fight against them. They headed east, south of Market Street. 
J.C. started questioning Anthony about why he hadn't committed any murders yet. Manuel said maybe he just wasn't ready yet, and Anthony tried to defend himself. Egos are clashing. So, but he tried to defend himself and he was like, no, no, you know, I can, I can do it. But J.C. kept pushing the issue. It was getting heated and J.C. told Manuel to stop the car by Phillips Bar and Grill. Anthony took the gun and got out of the car. That's when they saw John Bambick, 84, rummaging through one of the dumpsters. He had lived through the Great San Francisco Earthquake, the Spanish-American War, World War I and II, and the Korean and Vietnam Wars. He had seen the coming of electricity and cars. At this time, he lived a scavenging lifestyle. It's like a freegan. A what? A freegan. What's a freegan? You've not heard of freegans? No, what is that? So they live off of what other people discard. And so they they go through like dumpsters outside of big restaurant chains and things like that or grocery stores. And when they throw stuff out, they'll go through, pull things out, look at the expiration date. They know milk doesn't expire for this long and eggs take actually this long past the expiration. And so they'll take these things with them. And that's like their shopping trips to the store. Oh, no, I had never heard that term before. Yeah, freegan. Sounds like maybe. He was maybe a freegan before they were called that, maybe. I don't know. I don't Could even be. know if they're still called freegans either. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard that term, so it's new to me. Yeah, so it's not a vegan, it's a freegan. Freegan, okay. Free food. All right, you're teaching me something. <laughs> <laughs> so Anthony walked up to him and shot him once in the back. John turned around and grabbed Anthony by the neck. And Anthony was shocked by this. He didn't expect him to, you know, try to retaliate. So the two men struggled. John wow. was a- he was 84. Heck yeah. He's like, yeah. I've been through a lot of things. Yeah. Okay, Two I'm wars. Put up a fight. Three wars. Yeah. He was a Four fighter. wars. <laughs> oh my gosh. And the earthquake. Everything. Wow. Yeah. So he Tough was like, guy. not going down without a fight. Yeah. Okay. So John was determined to fight, but his grip weakened and Anthony was able to escape. He was pronounced dead at the scene. That's so sad. Now they were headed east around Silver Avenue. Jane Hawley, 45, was doing her laundry at a laundromat on the corner of Brussels Street while waiting for her husband to come home. She was transferring her clothes from the dryer to the folding table. There were several other customers in the building when Manuel ran in and shot her twice in the back, then ran out. Lonnie Green was one of the customers who rushed to help her when the police were called. He saw the whole thing, and officers gave a description of the assailant. Manuel was seen running around the corner to the Cadillac. Jane passed away later at San Francisco General. So this night, three murders have already happened. Like, one after another after another. Now, Jesse is in jail already, right? So this this was J.C. Four murders. And this was J.C., Manuel, and Larry? Anthony. And so now Anthony has committed a murder. That's what they say. Okay. Yes. In the book, it stated that Anthony killed John. But there are conflicting articles about that. Later on, we'll talk about why. why. Okay. So Jane Hawley was the fourth victim this night. Only a mile and a half away, 23-year-old Roxanne McMillan was moving boxes into her new home. She and her husband just relocated because of his job. She was outside making her way towards her house when JC approached her from behind. He said hi, and she said hi back while still walking up the stairs. So it's not like, I think she didn't look back. She was like, I'm carrying things. Right. So... He shot her twice in the back and once in the side as she turned to speak to him. J.C. ran back to the car and they sped off. Alan McMillan, her husband, ran to multiple neighbors' homes to ask for help. She was taken to the trauma unit and underwent emergency surgery. 
She was the fifth victim that night and the only one to survive. Wow. So five attempted murders and then four of them died. Yeah, I know. Like one after another after another. They were on a spree that night. But let me tell you something impressive. The SFPD were quick on the scene with these shootings. The recorded communications would state the following. So for Tana's shooting, the call was received with dispatch at 7.51 p.m. and police arrived in two minutes. With Vincent's shooting, the call was received at 8 p.m. and they arrived in two minutes. John Bambick's call was received at 9.17 and a unit arrived in two minutes. Jane Hawley's shooting was received at 9.52. They arrived in one minute and 20 seconds. Roxanne McMillan's shooting was received with dispatch at 9.57, and a unit arrived in 50 seconds. These shootings were really close to each other. Yeah, they were basically just driving around. Yeah, in the area. And so, and then I'm sure after the first shooting, the police were already in the area. So they... Yeah, they were trying to stay on top of things. <clears throat> but unfortunately, like, they wouldn't be quick enough to yeah. catch them. But I still have to say that is really quick. Two minutes is a good response time, yeah. The last one, 50 seconds, yeah. So the next morning, headlines would read, San Francisco killing spree, two-hour death drive. The San Francisco mayor announced at a press conference that a massive manhunt was underway. It would be codenamed Zebra because the police radio channel that was dedicated to it was called Z. They issued a warning to the citizens to stay off the streets at night. It was around this time that Temple Number 26 began to be suspected by police. However, since it is a religious institution, it was against the law to have it under surveillance. Even if they suspect murders are being committed by the people at this temple, they can't have it under surveillance? Yeah, they couldn't at that time. So at this press conference, I didn't even think about this, but people started to ask, was it called zebra because of the black and white factor? Because that's what I thought at first when you told me about it. Yeah, I didn't even think about it. Me, you know me, things go over my head all the time. (laughs) But when they said that, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. So it was Channel Z. Mm -hmm. So the city's tensions were high. The biggest manhunt in San Francisco's history at the time was happening. Citizens were scared and law enforcement was desperate to apprehend the suspects. Richard Hagg, one of the first victims who was brutalized and hacked with a machete, spoke to homicide inspectors Bill Armstrong and Dave Tochi. He was granted anonymity and gave a chilling account of a secret mass murder group. The Chronicle would write a piece on the story titled Police Blame Sect, San Francisco Victim Says. So after this, Anthony left Black Self Help and moved across the bay to Oakland. He was like, I am done with this. I need to distance myself from my friends. Well, especially after that five in one night mass murder. Like he, I think that to him was like, things are not going to get better. No. Like uh, there's no way like. It did sound like he was not into the murdering anyway in the beginning. Yeah. He was always like the really hesitant one. Yeah. And he held out the longest as far as committing a murder. And it sounds like he was just pressured, like JC just kept pushing him and he felt like he had to prove himself. And that's why he, if he did what he did, that's why it happened. Not saying that's okay, but that was his thought process at the time is what I'm thinking. He was maybe pressured by the group. Yeah. He thought, if I don't do it, I'm going to get kicked out or worse, they could murder me. Yep, exactly. He took his girlfriend, Debbie, and his son, Anthony Jr., along with him. He didn't tell anyone where he was going because he feared for his life at this point. The owner of the company would later say that he fired Anthony, but for whatever reason, he stopped contact with JC or Manuel. He would still contact Larry sometimes because he felt like he was a little brother to him. However, 
later conversations would show to him that Larry was just as bloodthirsty as the rest of them. Because Larry was the one that decapitated the woman. And the one who shot two people in six minutes and then was laughing like crazy. I think he's just as cold-blooded as Jesse. He is. And he's the one who would like was fascinated with the prison lifestyle. I think he was very enthusiastic about the killings. He was very eager to get his wings as well. Yeah. The incidents on January 28th were committed with a 32 caliber pistol. However, it was not the same one used in the nine previous shootings. There were many witnesses, but the descriptions of the killers would be too vague to come up with anything concrete. Officers were putting in hours of overtime, but there wasn't much to show for it. They urged the public and possible informants to come forward. They'd take information from anyone, including a possible assailant. They were running checks with the DMV on owners of 1969 Cadillacs, which was one of the commonly spotted getaway cars. They were matching up driver's licenses along with the registrations to see if anyone fit the description of the suspects. So that's a lot of people to look through. And I don't know if that was very helpful to them, but they were trying. Like, whatever avenues they could try. That had to be, like, looking for a needle in a haystack. Right. I mean, California, That's that population is just crazy through the roof. Right. Investigators Corys and Fotinos spoke to a criminal psychologist who chose to remain anonymous, being that his input could become essential to the zebra investigation. He stated that with the information that they had, they were dealing with neat, physically clean, and well-dressed individuals. Now, how did they determine that? How did they know about the fedoras and blazers? From witnesses? The witnesses that had Possibly. seen? Because there were some witnesses that saw there them were, Yeah, the there scenes. were witnesses. They did say that, yes. So. Okay, so maybe that's from that. Yeah. Because like, how do you know if a murderer is well-dressed or not? That's Yeah, their okay. testimony probably played into that. From their MO, they were either very clever or very lucky, which he said, I think they're just very lucky. They said that based on the nature of the crimes, they were cowardly individuals, being that they would target mainly women and men who were either older or if they were young, they were built in slim stature. He predicted two things. One was that one of the men would turn on the others to protect themselves. And two, that when the suspects are caught, they will not resist. Not resist arrest? Yeah. Huh. What does that mean? That they're not going to resist. Like, what does that say about them? Like, they won't put up a fight. Like, they're just going to want to be cooperative. Okay. And is that in line with them being cowardly? They think, well, once the police actually are there, they're just going to I think go so. willingly. Okay. I think there is something to that. Eventually, surveillance was able to be done on Temple Number 26 at an apartment across the street. California's Department of Justice, agents from the State's Bureau of Investigation, and a homicide inspector with the SFPD were able to obtain about 400 photos of people attending the mosque. February and March passed with no further zebra murders occurring. A letter was sent to the chief of police in San Francisco, which made its way to Corice and Fotno. It said, quote, Dear Sir, I was once a Muslim, and I know for a fact that Muslims do advocate the killing of whites. In fact, they preach the extermination of the entire white race. Please understand that the information I am about to give you comes from several years of being a Muslim where I too advocated the killing of white children and taught a doctrine of hate. If any member should find that I have given out any information, my life will be in danger. I am withholding my name for that reason, but I cannot go on that my holding back on information could contribute to the brutal killing of more innocent people. End quote. The letter goes on to describe that they were able to kill without remorse because it's their duty to avenge what injustices have been done to their people. 
At the end of the letter, the writer states that he feels immense guilt and pleads for help to stop the campaign of hatred. So that's a lot. That's a lot. But the actual Muslim religion, they don't, they don't advocate yeah. for murder. Was he part of that he must have specific, been. what was the 26 temple? Yeah. Temple uh, 26. We don't know where he came from. It was an anonymous letter. So uh, I wonder if he was from the temple. He could yeah. have been. So on April 1st, 1974, Thomas Rainwater and Linda Story were taking a walk on Geary Boulevard. Thomas had just returned from a two-week evangelism campaign in Arizona. He wanted to lead a life that would help to serve orphan children. Linda Story was a very studious and sweet person, and so they were friends and both first-year cadets with the Salvation Army, and this night they were looking for a place to grab some snacks. Larry was feeling that Allah was moving him again. So he stopped by JC's place and asked for his gun. JC gave it to him. He said he was always willing to help a brother out. And then he left. As Thomas and Linda approached the corner of Webster Street, Larry walked past them. He drew the gun and shot Thomas in the back two times. He turned towards Linda, who was already running. He fired three times, but she was only shot twice. Larry ran from the scene, and witnesses who heard the gunshots would ask him what happened. He proceeded to flee. Thomas was pronounced dead at the scene, and Linda would survive. The typical 32 caliber shell casings were found. Within minutes, 50 officers swarmed the neighborhood, but weren't able to find anything. It should be noted that Temple Number 26 was only a block away from the incident. When I was reading about Thomas's funeral, the head of the Salvation Army said that they didn't even hold any resentment towards who killed him, because they were like, we just hope that this person is saved and will lead a better lifestyle. And they instantly forgave him. I'm always impressed when people can do that. Me too. Yeah. Me too, because that's got to be tough. That's got to be hard. Yeah. I, I don't think I could easily forgive. That would be really difficult. Yeah. After this, the SFPD quietly instituted a zebra patrol of dozens of unmarked cars. Thirteen days later, on Easter Sunday, April 14th, 18-year-old Ward Anderson and 15-year-old Terry White were at the bus station on the corner of Hayes and Fillmore. Ward was craving a cigarette, so he asked Terry if he had one. Terry said he didn't smoke, and he was on his way to meet his family for an Easter picnic. Manuel was walking downhill towards them on Steiner Street. Ward approached him and asked him if he had a cigarette on him. Manuel walked past him, ignored him, and he turned around and shot him twice in the back. Terry heard the sounds of gunshots, turned around, and then he heard three more gunshots, and Manuel ran off. What Terry didn't realize is that those gunshots had hit him. Once he did, he ran for help, and then he fell on the sidewalk. So he got shot six times? No, so um, Ward was shot twice in the back. And then Terry then heard. Terry heard it. Okay. And he heard three more gunshots, but he didn't realize that he, he had been. Shot. He was the one that was shot. Oh man! So paramedics arrived, and both victims would survive. Oh, that's good. And I think these are the youngest victims, but they both survived. So thank goodness. Two days later, Nelson or Nick Shields the fourth was playing lacrosse with his friend Jonathan May, both twenty-three years old. Jonathan asked if Nick was okay with helping him pick up a rug near the Ingleside neighborhood around 9.30 p.m., and he agreed. When they arrived, Jonathan went inside, and Nick was arranging the back of the station wagon to make sure that there was room for the rug. JC was around the corner when he saw Nick. He decided to draw his gun, and when he was within four feet of Nick, he shot him three times in the back. They all went through him and exited his body. He fell on the pavement and instantly died. 
JC fled, and he would be the last victim in this case. In total, there were 23 assaults, which resulted in 15 murders and left 8 wounded. And the common theme here is they're all shot in the back, which, in my opinion, is a cowardly way to do things anyway. Yeah. It's like the easy way out. They didn't know it was coming. Yeah, there was no way for them to fight back. Mm -hmm. So just an observation. After Nick's murder, Mayor Aliato met with the SFPD leaders and said that they needed to do whatever they had to do to stop the murders. On April 18th, it was announced that the SFPD was taking extreme measures. All available officers would have to patrol the area. They had authorization to stop and search any black male who fit the description of the zebra killers. Which is not right. No, no. And listen to this description, because it's the most vague description, and it fit like almost 50% of the population. population. So 20 to 30 years old, around 5'9", 261, slender to medium build, light or dark, and maybe a mustache. So that was like half the population exactly. could be searched. Yeah. It's like it's right. not. No. That is not a specific description. That's not. They so were getting to, desperate. They didn't know what to do. Exactly. So they just said, we'll just search everybody. But that's against their civil rights. And we'll we'll see what happens. Let me let me tell you how did that How did that work out for them? Okay. So when they were stopped, men who were determined to not be suspicious were given zebra cards, which would state that they had already been searched. This was, what? Yeah, so so if another officer who didn't already search this person stops them, they show the card, like, hey, I've already been searched before. So you, you could be subjected to searches whenever, like, multiple Isn't that times. A civil rights violation? Some, it's gotta be. Oh, absolutely. That's ridiculous. And it was in- instantly controversial. Investigators Fotnos and Coris decided to work with the SFPD's sketch artist. The use of a sketch artist was risky because on the chance that it was not an accurate representation, the wrong person could be arrested. After six months with no leads, they decided to take a chance on it. Like we said, law enforcement is desperate at this point, and so is the government, like, and the citizens. Everyone has high tension right now. So the sketch would appear in the Chronicle and the Examiner on April 18th. These sketches were placed everywhere, on storefront windows, bulletin boards, and in supermarkets. On April 19th, a $30,000 reward for any information that could lead to the arrest and conviction of the zebra killings was released. The sweeps were expanded, and over 200 officers would be involved. Joseph B. Williams was one of the many who were stopped during these searches. He was a lawyer who had argued many cases for the NAACP. He was 62, so way older than the age range that was released for these sweeps, but he was still... He was still searched. He was still searched. And so he took out a federal lawsuit against Mary Aliato, the SFPD, and the city. They had a hearing almost immediately. The ACLU, the NAACP, and the Sun Reporter all criticized the strategy. Because it's a terrible strategy. It is. Yes. The mayor would try to defuse the situation, but was unsuccessful. As the lawsuit was making progress, the chief inspector would testify that the zebra sweeps had failed to accomplish anything. So it was pointless. So he was in favor of it, but he also admitted, like, yeah, nothing's happening here. So it's not working. And it's probably making tension even worse. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. So Judge Alfonso Zerpoli declared the sweeps a violation of the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which forbids illegal searches and taking of property. Yeah. That so sounds, that sounds right now. <laughs> like you said. But, yeah. It's a violation of your civil rights. Yeah. 
Back in Oakland, Anthony had stopped talking to Larry. One day, Larry told him that everyone felt like he was a traitor and threatened that they could find him and his family. He was on a walk when he saw the sketches that were released of the suspects in the newspaper stand. And when he saw these uh, sketches, he instantly felt like he resembled one of them. And he started to think that other people would think the same thing. Mm-hmm. He also because knew. he was one of them. <laughs> well, I don't know if he, if um, the sketch was actually of Anthony. Yeah. Oh, okay. It could have been of Manuel. It could have been. But he was uh, just worried because he was associated with it that it might be put together. And he was he, at the scene of some of yep. them. You know, I'm He's sure that nervous. Exactly. He also noted the thirty thousand dollar reward. So he hid himself in his home for a few days and thought about things. And then on April twenty second, Anthony called the San Francisco city government. Did he? What did he talk about? What did he call for? It wasn't like a simple hello, I can tell you that. <laughs> Most tips that law enforcement was receiving were not helpful. When they got Anthony's call, he insisted that he would only speak to them in person. Officer... Why would he want to speak in person? I think he just felt more secure if it was in person. Really? Yeah. like He, he wasn't worried about getting arrested? Well, at this time, they didn't know any association, you know, that he had with it. Yeah, I was wondering why he wanted to talk in person. So officers Klotz and Brosh made their way to Oakland to speak to Anthony. And obviously, officers have been getting tips, so they, they've they been traveling to see many people. So yeah. they were like, all right, well, we'll see this guy, see what he wants to say. When they met with him, he was dressed in a black tuxedo, tennis shoes, and a fez-like hat acting paranoid, talking about how dangerous the zebra guys were. And so when they first saw him, I think they thought maybe he was a little off. So Anthony told them about meeting some of the guys while in San Quentin, that they were all Muslim and worked at the Black Self-Help. They continued the interview in the Hall of Justice, and later, Inspectors Guilford and Sanders would arrive to help. When Larry Green's name was brought up, Guilford and Sanders knew that they were right about their suspicions about him. So they were like, I knew when we stopped yeah. him there was something going on. Anthony told them about the hag attack. Ericat, Dancic, and the five-in-one night spree. Guilford called Fotinos and Coris to continue the interview. What gave Anthony the most credibility, though, was the incident prior to the hack attack, the kidnapping attempt of the kids. Oh, because they did know about that. They did know about that, but they never released it to the public. And they didn't know it was linked. Oh, so that really did give him the credibility. So, so they were like, okay. the only way someone would know mm-hmm. that those two were linked yeah. was because that they, were, they were there. Yeah. He told them about the incident in December when he was asked to dispose of a bag. He said that he realized from its look and smell that there was a corpse inside. He told them about the secret society called the Death Angels and what methods were used to get your wings. He claimed that there were other Death Angel groups across the country, but there is no evidence of this and no other reports of this term after this. You know, I don't know how valid that is. When he talked to police, he tried to minimize his own role, but did admit to being an accessory to the hag attack. So he's laying it all out there with law enforcement. But he's, you know, kept some things to himself. Has he? Yes. Police ended the interview around 10 p.m. He told police that he knew that there was a contract out on his life, and so Coris and Fotnos took him and his family to a Holiday Inn in San Francisco. Anthony's statements wouldn't be enough to justify arrests. His statements needed to be backed up in order to hold up in court. Police started 24-7 surveillance on all the men that Anthony named. On April 25th, Mayor Aliado ended the zebra sweeps after seven days. He didn't know about the information Anthony had given law enforcement yet. 
Anthony would wander off and escape the officers protecting him a few times. He tried to visit Larry's family, hoping that they would convince him to confess. This did not work, and now Larry's girlfriend knew where Anthony and his family were staying. Anthony, he's not thinking. I know, I know, <laughs> but I think his mind is everywhere. He's, like, thinking of all these different possibilities, then he's getting anxious and freaking himself out, and then I, I just think he doesn't know what to do. So know? he's doing everything. Yes. Okay. The NOI members would get word of this, and then they would show up to his hotel. Like, so now he's found. Yes. Okay. And police, luckily, they kind of sensed that these guys were after him. Uh -huh. They were looking for him. And they were like, okay, we got to move him. <sighs> so on April 27th, Anthony told officers that he would not cooperate any further unless he could talk to the mayor and be granted immunity. Corey's called Mayor Aliato and told him of Anthony's request. Aliato returned to San Francisco and met with Anthony. He told him his story, but Aliato had one concern. He said that being an accessory to murder is one thing, being a murderer is another, and he would not grant immunity to anyone who actually killed anyone. Anthony stuck with his story, and that's why there are conflicting articles about who killed John Bambick. Because Anthony lied about it? Did or we don't We don't I know don't if he know. lied. It sounds like he could have. The book says he did. And that's based on court information. But then other articles online say JC did it. And so I don't know. So did they put that spin on it so that way they could grant him immunity and catch the other killers and prosecute them? And they just figured, well, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to do this. I think they were looking at the bigger picture. Like they were like, we wow. have to. I don't know if they suspected that he did commit a murder or if he ended up telling later. You know, it, it's a little unknown or uncertain, but what we can say is they were looking at the bigger picture. We want to, these murders to stop, and so we need to get all of these guys. Mm -hmm. So with that, Anthony was granted immunity. Later that day, Richard Hag identified photos of his assailants, Larry Green, Jesse Cooks, and Anthony Harris. And Anthony Anth remember identified himself? Richard Hag identified Anthony. Richard Hag identified Anthony. Okay. Yeah. So remember, he didn't commit any murders that night, but he did help with the assault and right. the kidnapping. Okay. On May 1st, the task force of over 100 officers was preparing a massive operation. Mayor Aliato called a press conference, even though investigators argued against it because they wanted to keep the information. But mm -hmm. then the mayor was like, the community needs to know that we have information. So it was like the investigators wanted to hold back because maybe they could find out more information later on that, you know, they could use for court purposes. To aid them with their investigation. But then the right. mayor is like, well, I have a duty to the tell people. the public what's going on. Yeah. So there's that Where clash. do you find that happy medium of... Is there one? Uh, no, probably not. So they were preparing a raid that went smoothly and none of the suspects resisted arrest, like, like the psychologist they, called. Like he called. All of them denied committing any murders. Larry Green, Manuel Moore, and J.C. Simon were now in custody and the zebra killings stopped. As soon as they were in custody, they stopped, so. But that same night, two young black men, Theodore Gooden and James Cook, were driving through Broadway Tunnel. Next to them, two white men in a pickup truck pulled up and fired into their car. James was killed instantly and Theodore's hand was injured. The men in the pickup truck sped off. Unfortunately, these men were never caught, but it is speculated that this was an attack in retaliation to the zebra murders. 
So I think if the mayor hadn't made that announcement, announcement yeah. maybe things could have gotten worse. So there is that balance there or there's not, I don't know if I want to call it the balance, but there's the pros and cons here. Like, do you hold back and then have the community go into chaos or do you let them know let we them have know people in custody so people feel safe? And you know, when you, when you don't feel safe, people don't, they just react. Yes. Unpredictably. Or in retaliation, right? Like those two did. Yeah. yeah. If that was what it was. I mean, either way, this is a tragic incident as well. Larry Green, J.C. Simon, Manuel Moore, and Jesse Cooks were indicted on the many charges related to the 23 incidents. The trial started on March 3rd, 1975, and lasted until March 9th, 1976, one year and six days. It was a long That's trial. A- Right. We know this. Like, wow. I couldn't even imagine no. working a trial that long. That's, that's exhausting. No. Absolutely. So there were 181 witnesses that testified. Wow. The court reporter took down three and a half million words of testimony. The transcript was 14,000 pages and bound in 141 volumes. Court reporters, man. <laughs> I wonder how much that is. Uh, Real MVPs right there. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm sure that costs a lot. Oh, yes. Because I think they get paid by, is it per page or per word? If it's per and there's word. A fee, well, there's a fee for just preparing it, but then I think it's a per page fee as well or something. Yeah. And the time it took for the court reporter to prepare that? Wow. I, I, <gasps> yes. Wow. All men were represented by attorneys retained by Nation of Islam, except for Jesse Cook's. And he was already in custody. He was the first one to be arrested, right? Yeah. Okay. It's like uh, three incidents in, I think. Because he had pled guilty, you know, they disowned him. And he was represented by a court-appointed attorney. So I do want to talk about what really, what they really needed, which was the gun that Mm -hmm. was used because they did not use a different gun in these murders. And the first one was actually thrown into into the bay. Yeah. But then they bought a similar gun or bought, a, they used a similar gun. And never found that one either. So what they did, somehow they were able to link the gun and they had to go through so many people. I think the person who bought it initially gave it to someone and then they were in Hawaii and they had to go to Hawaii to like talk to this person. And then it went to someone else and then it was stolen and then it wasn't pawned off. And then- So they had to follow that trail to... Yes. Yes. And then eventually they got a lead from someone in prison who said, I gave the owner of the Black Self-Help Company this gun. And then obviously... They gave it to... They used one- the oh. car and the gun, you know? And they could link it up. And that's how it was linked. So I just thought that like them traveling around and having to the process go through to because they they felt like they couldn't because it was such a long process. And so it was a very um, discouraging process. But then eventually they got that lead from someone in prison. It was a valid lead. And they that's what they needed. It. So they didn't have just circumstantial evidence. huh? Exactly. Wow. What a process to get them convicted. And really, without Anthony's testimony, they may never have been caught. Exactly. Yeah. Because whether it was because they were clever or lucky, it's hard to say. If Anthony never called them, they could have kept committing these murders. And wow, that's that's crazy. Yeah. So in a way, even though he was granted immunity, and I know that's it could have saved frowned many upon. lives. Yeah, it could yeah. Have saved many more lives. I think. Yeah, he, like they've had to look at it the was for greater the greater good. good. Yeah. 
What a tough choice to make, though, because you're letting somebody who quite possibly did commit a murder have immunity. But you're granting immunity to the person who was most reluctant and didn't really want to do any of this, even though he did. And he did some messed, messed up stuff, but... But how do the victims... Fam- how does that victim, the one he potentially killed, how does the family feel? It's like that murder to them is everything. I know. I know. I, I couldn't even imagine what their feelings are yeah. on that situation. That is heavy. That's a lot. It's a lot. But let's talk about the testimony. Okay. So... Manuel Moore would testify, and he was easygoing for the most part, but he would become confused if he felt pressured. And that's kind of his personality through the book as well. Like, he's just an easygoing person, but would kind of be confused about things sometimes. A lot of his testimony would become contradictory. J.C. Simon testified, and I don't know if you could tell, but J.C. seems like the most, what's the word, like, emotionally just all over the place. He gets angry and he gets, yeah, emotionally unstable, frustrated, but he was his own worst enemy on this trial because he spent most of the time trying to make a mockery of the prosecutor and the jury. Don't mock the jury. These are the people who are in a jury trial. Right. Exactly. He would state in cross-examination that he traveled from Texas to California by riding a snake and then a tornado. By riding a snake. Okay. Or a tornado. Well, halfway. Yeah. So he got off the snake halfway and then... Picked up on the tornado in Kansas somewhere, right? Possibly. (laughs) He also claimed that Allah had given him a binder on how to kill devils at a public park in San Francisco. So So I think he was a little... Did he have some mental health issues, maybe? He might have been a little unhinged or something. Or was he doing this on purpose? I don't think so. I think he was just a very, like, um, I don't know if dramatic is the word or fantastical. Nonsensical. Nonsensical. (laughs) Sure. Yes. Larry Green testified and he was... Theatrical. Theatrical. That's the word. He's very theatrical. Yes. I don't know what's going on in, in his mind. No. Larry Green testified and was quite articulate and poised through the process. Jesse Cooks did not testify. Because he was already in custody on... He already had life. Right. So there was no point to having him testify, right? I think he was just like, whatever. Like, I'm already here. And his co-defendants are not even his friends. Yeah. So he's like, whatever. Superior Court Judge Joseph Koresh instructed the jury in 74 possible verdicts it had to select from in determining the murder, conspiracy, assault, kidnapping, robbery, and other charges. This trial's been over a year, right? Wow. I wonder, you you would think, how long would the jury take to decide on this? Well, they took 18 hours. That's it. Wow. To reach a unanimous conclusion that all four defendants were guilty on all accounts. So I would have thought it would maybe have taken a little bit longer than that. Yeah, I would think so, too, because you would. Well, I mean, I can't I can't judge. You just never know. Yeah, you don't know because you're not in there. You would think it would take longer than 18 hours. Yeah, but that's when they decided as the verdicts were read to them. J.C. Simon stared straight ahead with no emotion. Jesse Cooks was also emotionless, staring at the floor. Manuel Moore and Larry Green looked at each other and smiled and winked. All received multiple life sentences, and none have ever been paroled. Anthony received the $30,000 reward money and possibly a new identity. Because there's no record of what happened to him after this, right? Right. So he probably, because he had a son. He did. He had a a family. I wonder if he went into, like, the witness protection program or something. I'm sure it's possible, especially as 
as big as this case was. Right. And then he had a hit out on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. I think they knew that he would possibly be in danger even after the trial. But even in the trial, it, it sounded like the defense tried to make it seem like Anthony was crazy or out for revenge or whatever. But I mean, the jury didn't believe that. Obviously didn't take that yeah. into consideration because they were all found guilty. Hmm. And like you said, for the greater good, like you imagine how in panic the city of San Francisco is. And they're like, this guy gave them up and there was enough proof, I guess, to convict them. So, But he wasn't committing murders anymore. If he did commit the murder, the one, Anthony, mm-hmm. he wasn't doing that anymore. He had moved away from. After that, he moved away. Okay. So I guess they could justify it that way in their heads. Yeah. And you never know what's going on in someone's brain, like why they're thinking certain things. And and so that's why I try to just stick with the facts this episode, because you don't know what everyone's thinking. You did a really good job. It's a lot. It was, it it is was a lot. heavy yeah. case. Yeah. When I was done with the notes, I <laughs> I told you. I was you like, texted me like, okay, I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But hey, can you look at this and see if it makes <laughs> <Can> sense? <laughs> right, right. And it did. You did a great job. I think... That's intense, though, and I I just don't know how I feel about them granting immunity to Anthony because he did kill somebody. I know. I know you feel conflicted about it. I do feel conflicted about that. But again, like you said, it sounds like it did stop them from committing further murders, so it did save people, like, in the end. That's really tough. But to this day, J.C. Simon, he died in 2015. He was 69. Jesse Cooks died in 2019, and he was 76. Manuel Moore died in 2017 at age 73, and Larry Green is still in custody. Just one of the murderers is still alive. Convicted murderers. Mm -hmm. Convicted murderers. Right, because Anthony, we don't know. According to the book, he murdered one person. Yeah. So it's still into question, but we'll leave that up to you. (laughs) Like, how you want to feel about that or what you think about that. Yeah, let us know your thoughts on this one. It was a um, heavy one, but I think I wanted to to do it because it, I think it's an important case. Yeah, I'd never heard about it. So I'm glad that you found it and you only found it because of the Doodler episode. Yeah, what are the odds? How did you find the Doodler episode? Wasn't that another rabbit hole? Like you went down from something else and you're like, oh, did you hear about this? Yeah, I don't remember how I found the Doodler. I think I was just looking up lesser known serial killers. And then he came up. Okay. And then through that, you found the zebra murders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you never know what you're going to find. Like I said, we were planning on doing Junko. Will she be your next one? I don't know. I don't so know. I'll have to look and see what's on, in the schedule. <laughs> yeah. And I, so my next one is supposed to be Richard Speck, right? Yeah. Unless okay. you find something else that is like super fascinating that you want to deep dive into. Yeah. I made you him, but I also made you one I've been interested in. Which one is this? <sighs> Let me show you. So I was listening to this podcast called Stolen, and it's about a woman named Jermaine who goes missing. It's really good. The podcast is really good. I wanted yeah, to see you, um, if there's a book on it. I've listened to some of those episodes, too. You've sent them to me. And she still hasn't been found. Her body's oh, never really? been recovered. There was some thought that it may be her boyfriend, and there was some abuse in the relationship. He was arrested. There was, like, an update that he was arrested. But I think it was, it wasn't because of her murder. It was because I think he had a firearm and he is a felon. And you, of Mm. course, can't own a firearm if you're a felon. I want to find more information on it, but I can't. It's like just this podcast. And I don't want to do an episode on a podcast because obviously they do so much research and I I don't want to 
take their research and, and make it my own. I want to find a book about it. Yeah. If I can find a book about it, I'll do it. Or if I can find some articles online, I'll do it. If not, just listen to that podcast. It's so good. Stolen. Yes, it is really good. She is an indigenous woman. So it's the missing and murdered indigenous women. I want to do some of those. I just have to find information on it. And I know. And even then, it's still tough to find. The stories need to be out there. It's like it's catch so 22. I it's know. like you want to get that information out there, but it's hard to find the stories. And of course, you know, we have full-time jobs and, you know, we're not investigative journalists. We're just, you know, two two girls who like to share true crime. So we do what we can, but these stories definitely get to us. I oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I, when I finished my notes, I was drained. Yeah. I was like, my brain is an overload right now. And, but also you want to tell the stories correctly and get accurate information out there and especially if they're lesser known, you want to just bring a voice to them. Yeah, right? mm -hmm. absolutely. I think you did a great job with this two-parter. Oh, thank you. Thank nice you. work. We'll see. Maybe there'll be more in the future if I get like super invested in or it's yeah. like I have to do two parts. On well, if I you have enough information, you know, you can. Right. And I noticed when we have a book on something that happened, a true crime, then we end up doing a two-parter. So much more information from the books. Absolutely. Yeah. Then just finding things online and different articles. And you can piece together a really nice episode with articles online. But yeah, books give you so much information. It's, yeah. It's, it's great. And then I noticed too, when I do a book, I'm sure you've noticed, like when you read the book, then you not only have your notes, but even while we're doing the episode, you're just kind of talking about it without even looking at your notes some parts because there's more information in your head from the book that you didn't even have to write down, but it, you know, you think of something and in response, you bring it up. Yeah, because it's in your brain. Mm -hmm. Like you've absorbed it. So <laughs> it took me like a week to finish the book because, you know, like you said, we have full time jobs. Right. And so busy. I'm yeah. like, I have to find time to re finish reading because I have to know what happens after this. Yeah. You did a wonderful job. Thank so you so I'm, much. I'm excited. And this is a two parter, which bumps my episode, which I'm really thankful for because <laughs> you're like, I need, I need a break. More time. <laughs> yeah. So it was perfect. I think everything worked out great and uh, yes. well done. I'm sure you already figured this, but it come out back. <laughs> Back to back. Back to back. Yeah, we're now releasing any two parters back to back because that makes more sense. We, we don't want to make you wait two weeks. Yeah, that isn't. I wouldn't want to wait two weeks. No. Only one week for our two parters. That's amazing. Yeah, so Richard Speck, possibly or maybe not. We'll or, surprise or maybe, you. We'll or see. Maybe Jermaine's case, if I can find some other information on it, we will see. Until next time, stay caffeinated, get hobbies, and don't murder people. Bye. <laughs>